our final scripture reading from Hebrews is Hebrews 13, 20 through 25. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and be seated. And if you would, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it blesses us. We thank you that it reveals who you are. We thank you that it shows us Jesus. We pray that it would transform us this morning. And God, as we pray week in and week out, may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, so here we are at the end of Hebrews. Like This is kind of bittersweet. I, I've enjoyed this book immensely, and I love that we're here, and I love that the letter of Hebrews ends with a blessing. It ends with a good word. It ends with a benediction. Week in and week out, when we gather together, part of our liturgy, and we'll do it again this week, is we end with a benediction. And that word, benediction, in the Latin, it literally means good word. Good word being spoken over you. It's a blessing. It's a prayer of blessing for you. And the author of this letter, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, <clears throat> is praying a blessing over the people who would receive his letter. He's praying that the gospel would continue to shape them as the truth and the, the veracity of the gospel as it plays out in their lives and that it would be a blessing. And so it's no coincidence that uh, the, the author who's written this letter that is so saturated with the gospel and with a Christ-centered gospel of the covenant of grace, it's no surprise that this author would then end his letter with a, with a blessing rooted in the gospel. And so what I want us to do is hear one more time from the book of Hebrews, the gospel. And he sums it up in this, in verse 20. So we read verses 20 through 25, but he sums it up in verse 20 like this. He says, now may the God of peace, may the God of peace. Listen, this is the gospel. Our God is a God of peace. I want you to hear that again. Our God, the one we serve, of all the gods in the world, of all the things that we could serve, of all the things that we could worship, of all the gods that we could follow, our God is a God of peace. In fact, our God is the God of peace. Think about how radical this proclamation is. We've heard it before, but hear it again. God is not angry. The defining and abiding characteristic of God is not wrath. God makes 
peace. Right? There's no thing that you have to do. There's no sacrifice left to be made. There's no uh, uh, work to be done to appease the anger of God because in Christ Jesus, God is not angry. God pronounces, God brings, God makes peace. And this is particularly important as we come to the end of this letter and the things that this people are going through because when the author when when the the letter writer the the when when he says god is a god of peace and when we hear god is not angry with you what we're hearing is that in the midst of your suffering in the midst of your struggle your pain your hardship in the midst of the attacks that you feel ever present on you god is not angry with you and you must remember this the, the suffering, the persecution, the imprisonment, the, the sorrow, the struggle. These are not signs that God is angry with you. And this is important for these people as it is for us because we have a choice to make. In the midst of sorrow and in the midst of pain, we have a belief. We have a choice of what we will believe you can either view your hardship as a sign of God's displeasure with you. Or you can view it as a demonstration of God's love for you and solidarity with you in your hardship. You see, God is a God of peace and God is at peace with his people. And in Christ Jesus, what, what the, the recipients of this letter, what this church is hearing is that, yes, you are suffering. Yes, you are struggling, but you have a great high priest in Jesus who knows everything that you're going through because he himself has gone through it. Like we talked about last week, we have a great high priest and we have a savior in Jesus. Uh, we have a sacrifice in Jesus. We have a priest in Jesus who didn't find himself in the inner most parts in the most religious and most accepted and most politically and, and, and socially uh, privileged parts of the world. Instead, it says he was on the outside of the city. He was on the outside. And so if you find yourself outside because of the cause of Christ, that being on the outside is not a signal that you have somehow misunderstood what is right and true and that you should go back to works, but rather a sign, a demonstration that you are in fact with God and that God stands with you on the outside in solidarity. You see, your suffering and your struggles are not signs that God is angry with you because God in Christ Jesus is not angry. The fullness of his wrath has been appeased. God is a God of peace. And so the author of Hebrews starts this benediction by saying, now may the God of peace. And there's something that we need to know about this God of peace. The God who makes peace is the God who brings peace. The God who makes peace is the God who brings peace. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the first is this, that, that God makes peace. In fact, God has made peace. Peace has been made. 
We say, now may the God of peace, not because this is something that we hope God will be, but because this is the truest reality of who we know God to be. God has made peace. How has God made peace? Well, we see it right here. Who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. How has God made peace? He's made peace by the blood of the eternal covenant. God has made a covenant with us. He's made a promise and he will not break it. Now, in order for this to make its fullest sense, we have to flash back through the book, through this letter. Remember sermons back. Months back, when we first began talking about covenants and how the ancient Near Eastern or a, a, a second temple Jewish person might understand covenants. And they understood covenants in this sense. Covenants were pacts and agreements made between greater kings and lesser kings to stave off war. And here's the thing. If you were a lesser king, covenants were really beneficial to you because war wasn't going to go good for you. Right? And if you were the greater king, covenants were beneficial because you now just got new subjects, new taxes, new land, new soldiers. You see, a covenant was about disagreement at first. There was disunity. There was disharmony. There was enmity. There was not peace. And God, in his kindness, made a covenant with us. And we talked about Abram and the covenant that God made with Abram. Do you recall this? The covenant that God made with Abram where he, he put Abram into, into a trance of sorts, into a sleep. And then he did the ancient Near Eastern covenant ritual of killing the animals and dividing the animals and separating them and walking through the animals, re re um, reciting and repeating the, the promises and the blessings and the demands of the covenant. But instead of Abraham and God walking through this together, God walks by himself through the blood of the covenant. This blood and what it meant was that if this covenant between us was broken, then may we who have walked through the blood of these animals, may the same thing happen to us that happened to these animals. There is blood on this covenant and the fact is this covenant was broken. And so when the author here says by the blood of the eternal covenant, he is talking about something deep and even deeper still. At the very least, what we see is that the blood of Jesus, the blood of God himself was in keeping with the covenant. You see, the covenant called for, upon being broken, bloodshed. And God shed his own blood so that we might be drawn near. It's the blood of the covenant that makes peace. It's the blood of the covenant. And for a second, I want... To remind you also of C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? The first in the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, you, it's not a subtle book, <laughs> right? In terms of, an, of analogy to the faith, 
Um, but it's good, like really good. And if you recall, Edmund has, has eaten and, and drank from Jadis the White Witch, and she owns him. He belongs to her. Nonetheless, Aslan says, now come here, child, you're with me. And the witch comes, and she is very excited because Aslan has broken the deep magic. And therefore, either the child has to die or everything has to be undone. And Aslan says, actually, it just says someone has to die, right? That's unspoken in the book, but that's what's happening. And so Aslan goes and dies, right? This is the same type of thing. Christ in our place, Aslan in the place of of Edmund. The blood has been shed to satisfy the covenant. But if you hear here, if you read carefully, it doesn't just say the blood of the covenant. It doesn't say the blood of the Mosaic covenant. It doesn't say the blood of the Abrahamic covenant. It says the blood of the eternal covenant, the covenant that predates even Abraham and Moses. This is a different, better covenant. And the reason I bring up the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is this. Not only do we see how God has made peace, we see how we can be sure that God has made peace. Because what it is that it proclaims that the blood of the eternal covenant, if you're with me, what is proclaims that the blood of the eternal covenant has done is actually been the agent by which God raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. So the blood of the eternal covenant isn't merely what saves us. It is what raises Christ from the dead. And so How has God made peace? Through the blood of the eternal covenant. How can we be sure that God has made peace? Because our Christ, our Lord, our Savior is resurrected. He is alive. Because God was looking at and shedding blood. And this is what's amazing is God's blood, Jesus' blood, satisfied the Abrahamic covenant. And if that's all it did, then much like Jodis the White Witch, right? Much like death did that day and darkness did, though it would have been a kindness of God, it would not have been a victory. If it had only satisfied the Abrahamic covenant, we would not simply have, all we would have, if you want to use uh, uh, theological terms like we've done in pub theology before, all you would have is, is a sub- substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement. You would have a trade, his life for mine. What you would not have, which is just as important and proclaimed through scripture just as frequently, is Christus Victor, Christ the victorious over death and over sin and over the powers. Because you see, death, just like the white witch thought, yeah, I got you. You're dead. But what death didn't know, what the enemy didn't know, was the blood of Jesus was not merely satisfying the Abrahamic covenant. It was satisfying a magic deeper than the deep magic, a covenant more eternal and before the Abrahamic covenant. The 
God's eternal sovereign plan and purposes and covenant that he would, even from the foundations of the earth, save for himself a people. And so when Jesus' blood was shed, not only did it satisfy the Abrahamic covenant, it broke the stone tablet, the stone table, as it were. It broke death. It defeated death. When Christ died, death died. And the power of sin and the grave had no hold on him, not simply because he was Jesus the perfect, but because the eternal covenant had been satisfied and death had fully been defanged. Death simply doesn't have a hold of Jesus anymore. Death has no hold at all. Death has died. Like, this is the good news. How do we know that God has made peace? Because death has died because Christ is risen. This is why, as true as it may be that Christ's resurrection models for us some spiritual reality of being made new, this is why if Christ is not raised, if there is a body in the ground, we have no hope. And yet, from Sunday of the resurrection through this day, we are a people shaped by the assurance of a resurrected, not dead, victorious Christus Victor, as well as substitutionary atonement, Christ. The blood of the eternal covenant has brought back our great shepherd of the sheep and more than that, our Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord, y'all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like Jesus is Lord. That means so much more than like, I have to obey everything that Jesus says. That means Jesus has dominion over everything, including death itself. And, and that is not a personal reality that we accept. That is a universal truth that we can either walk in or reject. Jesus is Lord. God has made peace. But what I said was the God who makes peace is the God who brings peace. So we see how and that and how we can be certain that God has made peace. But he also brings peace. He also brings peace into our lives. He's made peace with us. He has made peace with man. He has made a way for reconciliation to happen, but God brings peace to us. And so the question is sort of like, how or what do I mean? How is it that peace is made manifest in our lives? How is it that we receive on a daily and day in and day out basis peace? Because that's what the author here is getting at. These are a people whose peace has been disturbed. He doesn't mean their eternal peace. It means their current peace. It means they're in the midst of suffering and doubt and fear, and they need peace. They, like, like, the, like the disciples on the boat with Jesus in the storm, Jesus isn't not there anymore. Jesus is very much present with them, but their understanding, their perception, their, their, uh, <clears throat> their, 
the manifestation of peace in their life is being robbed as it is with these people and as it may be with us. And so the first thing that restores that peace, obviously, is the belief in the gospel of the God who makes peace. That's why the gospel comes up over and over and over again. This idea that God has made peace through Jesus, that we can't earn it, that there's nothing that we can do or fail to do that will make us more or less loved or accepted by God in Christ Jesus than we are right now. But also there is a manifestation of peace that you can have in your life that you may be lacking this morning. Worry, anxiety, doubt, fear may be speaking a louder word to you than the peace of God. And that's not the blessing that the author gives us. The blessing is full peace from God. And so he goes on to say, now this God, the God who brought from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, may he do something. May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. How does he do this? He equips you to do it. He enables you. He gifts you to do it. He equips you with everything good for doing his will. He's working in us everything good for doing his will. And if we understand this in the context of the letter, not just sort of in this context of like, we have this idea of the will of God. And I've said this before, right? The tight rope over the chasm. And we have to like tiptoe over the will of God uh, because one misstep and we fall into the nothingness that is outside the will of God. And how do you get back in the will of God? None of that. Dead that. That is not helpful for your walk or your soul. I'm, I, I know that sounds funny, but I'm, I'm really serious. Like it, it only binds you. Right? Like, the will of God has been made clear from eternity past that you would be his children and that he would call for himself a people in Christ Jesus, right? And, and you get to then love the Lord and walk in freedom. However, he's equipping you to do good and to do his will. And in the context of Hebrews, that will is actually that you would, in, that you would have faith. The, the will of God in this letter is that you would have faith, and not just any faith, but a faith that endures, an enduring faith in the work of Jesus. An enduring faith that, that endures to the end. That is God's will for you. God's will for you is not to burn bright and flame out. God's will for you is long-term obedience in the same direction as Eugene Peterson would say. God's will for you is long-suffering, patient, walking. God's will for you is not that you burn with this passion, run as fast as you can, get gas, sit on the sidelines, say, what the heck happened? Maybe God isn't here and then turn back. God's will for you is a slow and steady lifelong faith. It's an enduring faith. The second thing is it's a courageous faith. God wants you to have a courageous faith, a faith that steps forward even in the knowledge that everything could be lost. Because if you lose everything here and you have Jesus, guess what you have? Everything. It's an enduring faith. It's a courageous faith. And it's an obedient faith. 
And then if you want to get into conversations about the will of God and obeying the will of God, right? That's where we're talking about doing what God has told us to do. But that happens out of faith, out of a faith that endures, out of a faith that has courage, out of a faith that trusts to the point of obedience. And as you do these things, here's what's happening. You recognize the object of your faith and you find not just eternal peace, but even in the moments of calamity, an abiding manifestation of God's peace in your life right now. When we say the peace of Christ be with you every week, we're not simply saying that because like one day you're going to go to heaven. We're saying it and the church has said it for as long as for, for, for perhaps close to thousands of years now. More than a thousand, 1500 years, right? The church has been saying this for a long time, right? And they've been saying it because one thing that the church and Christians throughout time and throughout history and throughout the world have always needed is to be reminded that there is an abiding manifestation of God's peace in your life. They are blessing you with peace. The peace of Christ be with you because peace is that thing that always seems to be moving. It always seems to be just out of reach and you need to be reminded that God has given it to you. It's that faith. And we're closing in here on the end, guys. It's that faith that is given to you by God. It's worked out in you by God. He equips you with every good thing. How? I want to get even deeper into this because it's unspoken, but it's here. It's not unspoken throughout Hebrews. It just happens to be unspoken in this text. That idea of equips you with every good thing, with every good thing. Another way you can read that is equips you with every good gift, every gift that you need for endurance and faith. Everything good for you uh, is being given to you by God. And it's and God is actually working itself that out in you. God is in you working that out. And just as we've seen before, time and time again, when, when the author of the Hebrews says, just as the Holy Spirit says, rest in me. Today, if you hear my voice, don't harden. And as you'll come to later and talk about how the Spirit is working in us these things over and over again, the Spirit is gifting us and working these things, even though it doesn't say the Holy Spirit here. We as Christians can understand and identify rightly the work of the Holy Spirit when we see it. And this is Holy Spirit work. The Spirit of God, by the blood of the Son and the will of the Father, works out in us, gifts us, equips us, manifests in us the comfort and the peace that we need from God. Jesus told us as much when he said he would leave his Spirit, the Comforter. This is the Holy Spirit working in you. You see, when it says equips you to do everything good or equips you with everything good for doing his will, or when it says working out in us that which is pleasing in his sight, those two clauses are meant to just sort of modify each other and to show you they're the same thing. We're not going to study those as two different things. Those are the same things. The God who has given you the gift is working that gift out to its fullness in you. The one who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He who's the author of your faith is the perfecter of your 
your faith. And he does it by his Holy Spirit. And this is what is so magnificent about this blessing and about the Christian life is that it is a triune work of God. God the Father who brings peace and who wills. God the Son who sheds his own blood and gives his own life. And God the Spirit, who takes all of that reality and makes it real to you. And then gives you the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. The same power that killed death in Jesus is the same power that is killing death in you now. And that should bring peace. The Holy Spirit is working in you. That's how. And then there's this little bit at the end that we never know what to do. Because, like, should we just do verses 21, 20 through 21? Or should we, you know, greetings, hey, say what's up to him, you know, like, shout out my boy, this, that, and the other, right? But it's important. Because when you see these things in the letters, number one, it feels really real, right? Like when you hang up the phone and you're like, hey, give your family my love. And when you're like, hey, let them know I was thinking about them. Like, that's really real. These aren't, these aren't like theological ideas that they were like, you know, it'd be a good way to convey these theological ideas, a fictitious letter. No, this was a person writing to other people. And then we're like, hey, look, there's all of this richness in this. But they were real people. And so the author says, listen, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of word exhortation, for I've written to you briefly, which... That's relative, right? <laughs> like, if you email me this as a letter, I promise you I ain't reading it. Right? Like, can you, can you distill this to a Twitter thread, please? <laughs> I've written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy is released, with whom I shall see you if he comes. There's this excitement, right? Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. What do you see right here is that all of the saints, all of God's people, all of the men and the women that God has called together are now also a part of working out in you that peace and that good and that will of God. Listen, if there had not been a person who was willing to write a letter to encourage the Hebrews... While we know God can do whatever God wills, it is reasonable to say they may have been so distraught that they turned from the faith. And so in this moment, God used this letter and this author for these people to feed them grace and to feed them the gospel and to remind them so that they would have peace. Without our brothers and sisters. Listen, like if you're like, well, like this is. There's, a, there's actually like a theological doctrine of this. It's called secondary means. God uses secondary means to save. God uses secondary means to sanctify. God could just open up your eyes and be like, Jeff, this is the gospel. And, you know, like you'd be like, okay, God. But that's not how it happened, is it? Somebody who wasn't God spoke to you the truth of God and you believed. God could be like, Emily, I got your back. And you can be like, oh, okay. Um, but what happened? God used the church and brothers and sisters in Christ to come and to meet your needs, and to pray for you, and to lift up your hands when they were tired. 
Right? This is how it works. And so it's no surprise here that he's reminding them of all the brothers and sisters who care for them because he knows that that joy and that care and that prayer, even just the knowledge of it, gives you just that little bit more to keep moving forward. It's no surprise that he says, greet everyone for me because I assure you that as much as this, this author is for the people that he is writing this letter to, he also needs and desperately desires them to be for him. Right? How does God work out what's good in you? First and foremost, the Holy Spirit in you. But then, and very importantly, with the fellow saints, and with the church. Which is why it's not enough for you to have a Bible and a stack of good commentaries and sit in your room for the rest of your life. You will never come to an understanding of who God has called you to be because God has called us to be. And you get to be a part of it. And when that works out, what happens? It's what uh, Tim Keller has called self-forgetfulness. You lose that sense, that deep abiding sense of self, and instead replace it with God and with the people of God. And here's what happens when you look away from yourself and out to others. Those fears and those cares and those concerns and anxieties, and I'm going to make a quick caveat and say, like, there is anxiety and there is, like, mental health at a level that, like, looking away from yourself is not the cure. It's actually seeking help and getting whatever help you need, however you need it. And step back aside, though, and say, but for the most part, when it comes to those fears and those concerns and those worries and those anxieties, there is a beauty in how they are lifted when you look away from yourself to the God who made you and to the people who God has called you into community with and the people to whom God has called you to be an ever-present witness of the coming kingdom, the here but already, uh, not yet, the here but not yet already kingdom, the, the God who has made peace. We are ambassadors of peace because we serve a God of peace and we have been blessed with these things. So not only do you receive a benediction, but rather we receive a benediction because we together are working out what God has called us to. That is the faith. So as we pray, just want to tell you again, pray for you again. May the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, give you everything good that you might work out his, his will and that he would work out in you all that is right all that he has called you to, all that is pleasing in his sight. Through Christ Jesus, amen. Amen.